looking at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 32. I had someone remark to me before the beginning of the service, like, I haven't really done much reading in Lamentations. Um, And from the title itself, it sounds pretty bleak, I think. But here in Lamentations 3, the passage that we're looking at tonight is is a very meaningful passage for me specifically. I think for many believers, there are some passages of Scripture that grow to have profound personal meaning. That when things are hard, you turn to certain passages of Scripture for comfort. But there are some passages that feed our souls when they ache inside of us, when the hardships of life the hatred of the world, the ongoing battle with sin that we all face, when those things are hard, we turn to the Word. This passage is that kind of passage for me. And again, it is kind of ironic that here we are in a book titled Lamentations, but for me this is one of the most hope-giving passages in all of Scripture. So Lamentations as a book is the poetic corollary to the major prophetic work, Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah records his prophecies, the historical accounts, the things that are going on during his ministry. And then Lamentations is almost like a journal. These are songs written by Jeremiah that express his emotions about this whole process, the whole ordeal of his life. This is Lamentations. And Jeremiah writes this. And it's interesting to look at those things, those two things hand in hand, his ministry in Jeremiah and then the book of Lamentations. So both of these books, they were written by, of course, the prophet Jeremiah. This prophet, he was located in the kingdom of Judah. At this point, Judah and Israel were separate kingdoms. And Israel, as a result of ongoing rebellion against God, has already been conquered and dispersed. Judah has now been in a prolonged period of turning to follow other gods other than Yahweh, the one true God. And Jeremiah has been prophesying judgment for Judah if they did not repent for a period now of over 40 years. He begins ministry as a young man. You can read that account in the early chapters of Jeremiah where God comes to Jeremiah and appoints him as a prophet. This happens when he's very young. He even remarks, how could I do this? I'm still a youth. So he's young when he begins, and his prophetic ministry spans the reign of the last five kings of Judah, these being Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And now judgment has come. Babylon is besieging Jerusalem over an 18-month period, and it has been horrendous. People are starving at this point to such a degree that they are turning to cannibalism. It's really, really bad. Not only this, but Jeremiah's own people hate him actively. We have passages such as Jeremiah 20, where Jeremiah remarks that he is a laughingstock. There are multiple attempts on his life. In Jeremiah chapter 38, Jeremiah is cast by his countrymen into a cistern, which would have been used to hold water typically, but at this point, this cistern was empty. There was no more water left in it, and so... It's basically just a pit at this point. And they throw him in, and the ground is just mud. And so we read in Jeremiah 38, 6, that he was cast down into the cistern and that he sank down into the mud. What a horrible, 
horrible thing to happen. Ultimately, Babylon conquers Jerusalem and carries the majority of the populace into captivity. Ironically, however, this is the nicest thing that happens to to Jeremiah throughout his ministry. The Babylonians release him and they tell him that he can go anywhere that he wants, that if he wants to go back with them to Babylon, he can and they will take care of him the rest of his life. Jeremiah chooses to remain in Judah, near Jerusalem. But after the governor of the area left in charge by the Babylonians is assassinated, the remaining populace of Jerusalem approach Jeremiah and ask for advice. They want to flee to Egypt. That's what they think they should do. They're like, Babylon is going to be very angry. They left this leader in charge. He's now dead, and now we're going to pay the price. We need to get out of here. And so their plan, we need to get out and go to Egypt. But they come to Jeremiah And they want confirmation. They ask him, what do you think we should do? And whatever you say to do, we will do it. So Jeremiah tells them that they should remain and submit to the Babylonians. But they refuse. They flee to Egypt. And not only that, but they forcefully take Jeremiah with them. And that is the last we hear of Jeremiah. That is his ministry. Of the books relegated to the prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is the only one there with Jeremiah, two books, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah represents an experience that was pretty commonplace for the prophets. They were typically rejected. Their ministries were pretty tough across the board. They all came prescribing judgment if the people did not repent. And we know ultimately that they didn't. Both Israel and Judah are conquered and dispersed. So there's, there's a lot of common threads between these different prophets. But Jeremiah has always stuck out to me. As almost an example of being a a worst-case scenario for ministry. Um, Decades and decades of ministry, but the people would not turn to God. He suffered continuously, and ultimately he was carried away in a final act of rejecting God. That's pretty brutal. But I I do believe it's important that we understand that context. This this is what's happening for Jeremiah when we look at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 32. And I think when we do that we get an interesting glimpse into how we should look at things such as suffering, ministry, which we are all involved in. If you are a Christian, if we are Christians together, we are doing ministry. And even fruit, which is something that we spoke about this morning. So at this point, we'll go to the passage. But before we do, let us pray. God, we praise you for Your unfailing word. Your word is sure. It is an anchor. It is solid ground. In Christ, you are the living word that holds fast no matter what we're going through, no matter what is going on. Oh, Lord, I pray as we look at your word this evening that you would be working in us in life-changing ways, in ways that only you can, because you are God. May this all be to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So again, we're looking at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 32. But this I call to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that a man, for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. and Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I love the beginning of this passage, but this I call to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah is writing, I, I need to remember this. I'm recalling this to mind. Remember his circumstances. This is a man for whom it has all seemingly ended in apparent failure, Leading up to the siege, he has for decades proclaimed judgment for unrepentant sin, and people have hated him for it. And now the Babylonians are at the door. His people view him as a kind of insurrectionist, undermining morale, and being a Babylonian sympathizer. For this he is hated, not only in word, but also in deed. The hardship that he has experienced is real. So when you read the couple verses before getting to 21, 19, and 20, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. That's tough. Note that Jeremiah is speaking from experience, experiencing really hard things. This is real emotion. This is real pain that he has experienced. Have you been in circumstances so bitter and difficult A situation or problem that won't go away. The darkness of a night so dark and long that you feel like the day will never come. You may be there right now. Jeremiah was when he wrote this. So much so that he says that his soul is bowed down within him. His soul is literally sunken within him. He feels crushed by his suffering. Suffering that he feels like he can't elude. And the weight burdens his soul so much that he feels bowed down by it. But in verse 21... 21, but this I call to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah says something incredible. Incredible to us. This I call to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah the mourner casts his eyes to what the world may view as as to Christ. Nothing else. He doesn't cast his eyes to what the world may view as a successful ministry or job. He doesn't recall to his mind friendships or familial relationships. He doesn't remember suddenly the high esteem he has in his community or a wealth of possessions. He remembers who God is. The phrase here that is, this I call to my mind, means to turn back to or to retreat. Jeremiah refocuses himself on something that he has held on to in the past, and this is God's loving kindness. Again, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Love never ceases. Mercies never end. Every day they are as new. He is faithful. These things were true for Jeremiah regardless of his circumstances. His pain, although viscerally real, could never rob him of who God is. Now, let's switch gears for a second. Think think of Job. The book of Job, the man Job. And his story. Let's think about him. I think often when we think of suffering, specifically from a biblical standpoint, 
One of the names we think of first is probably Job and his story. Job loses everything, his family, his possessions, his health. He once had much, but then he was so badly off, he cursed the day that he was born. But later, at the end of Job, he gets much back, doesn't he? He gets twice as many possessions as before. He has a new family. His health is restored. And he lives and finishes his earthly life, by all earthly measures, a very successful man. It ends very well for Job, even though there was that part, tremendous suffering that I cannot even fathom. For Job, it ends well. That doesn't happen for Jeremiah. He didn't have much to begin with. Beginning his very unpopular ministry from an early age, he never really sees real lasting repentance in the people to whom he was ministering. He suffers in a multitude of ways and then is carried away to Egypt. That's Jeremiah. Is what Jeremiah says here in Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Are these things any more or less true for Jeremiah than they were for Job? Was Jeremiah doing something wrong and short-circuiting God's favor? Did he make some misstep in his walk with God that doomed every step he took after because he made the wrong move and is now missing God's plan for his life? Job gets an earthly happy ending. Jeremiah doesn't appear to have one. What's going on? Is what Jeremiah writes here in Lamentations true for the believer in such a way that it holds just as true for people who live and die as Jeremiah did, as well as those who live and die as Job did. Regardless of the ending, is this true for you and for me? Regardless. And what of the believer who goes through life with a career that ultimately ends in disappointment? The believer with chronic health issues that never go away in this lifetime? The believer with a world around her who hates her her whole life because she follows Christ and believes his words? Because we may know in our heads the right answer to this, right? But when you're in the trench of life, it can be really hard. And we may feel like Jeremiah did. Our souls bowed down. Within us, crushed beneath the weight of these circumstances. But Jeremiah's soul speaks to his own cast down spirit in verse 24. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What a verse. What a promise. What a hope. Jeremiah's ministry may have been unrelenting and apparently unfruitful. Jeremiah may may have suffered persecution, torture, and threats of death. His problems may have persisted until the day he died, but Jeremiah had something that could never be Lost. He has something that could never be taken away. His circumstances could never affect what Jeremiah has. Jeremiah's portion is the Lord himself. Portion here is his lot, his share, his inheritance. This is who Jeremiah has, the Lord. He whose mercies are new every morning. He whose faithfulness is great. He whose steadfast love never ceases. This is who belongs to Jeremiah. This is his portion. And this is true for every believer. Regardless of the fluctuations of everyday life, the steadfast love of the Lord is just as much yours as anyone else's. He is your portion and no sickness, no failure or failing could ever rob you 
of the mercies that are new every morning because they are new for you. No one could ever rob you of God's great faithfulness because he will continue to be faithful to you. So Jeremiah, going off of this, he does two things. The first thing he does is that he affirms his call without regret. Jeremiah was called from an early age to a ministry that was apparently unfruitful. But in verse 27, Jeremiah says, what? It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. We just talked about fruit this morning. I think sometimes we bear the weight, this expectation of bearing fruit, that just because we don't see apparent fruit, we expect that we have failed. This may be you sharing the gospel with someone or there's an act of kindness or service that you were performing for a person, a family, whatever it is. But whenever you engage in whatever kind of ministry you're doing, you may have in your mind clear, measurable outcomes that determine whether or not you feel like you succeeded or failed. And so you shoulder the weight of that. I may have, I don't know if I've told this story before or not. When I was, um, when I was a teenager, I was, I was still a high school student, but I was taking some classes at a, a local university. And uh, it was a literature class. And in that class, there was also the people I kind of sat with and like, if we had projects to do in the class, we did them together. There was a girl who was not a believer, and then there was a guy who was. And um, across the course of this class, I had an opportunity to share the gospel with her. And so I did. Now, I'm not saying I was very good at it, because I'm a very introverted person. I have my fair share of anxiety, and so if you know me at all, you can pick up on any of that. Well, it was ten times worse then. So, but I have this opportunity, and I do it. I start talking to her. We're having a conversation. We talk. I don't remember all, all that we talked about, but we, we kind of talk about sin. And then I begin to talk a little bit about Christ and our need for him. And, again, I don't remember all the specifics, but I made a remark that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you can't lose it because you can't be taken out of God's hand. And I said something to that effect. And so I was speaking to the girl who was not the believer, but the guy who was there with us, who professed, professes that he is, um, he did not agree with that take. He did not, uh, he does not, he did not believe in eternal security. And so that conversation devolves into him wanting to have a debate with me about eternal security. And for me, that was worst case scenario because I'm trying to share Christ and then it becomes this other thing entirely and we look silly because she's not a believer and she's so... It, the whole thing is stinks. And um, at the end of that conversation, again, I, I don't remember all the ins and outs of it, but the conversation at this point was kind of already tanked, but I, I said to her something to the effect of, you know, regardless of what you think of what I said or anything like that, I really encourage you, you should read the Bible. You should read the book of John. And that's what I told her to do. 
And I, I went out of that conversation feeling like it was a total flop. And, um, and I carried that for a while because I felt like that was kind of on me. That if I had done it a different way, if I had said it another way, if I had had the forethought to not have this conversation around this other guy or just ha- held in that one comment, you know, it wouldn't even, you, you know, so I, I, there's a lot of analysis, the post game, you know, you're going over the tape and you're like, okay, well, this is a mess. And um, so that happened. And by all accounts, if you had asked me, was that fruitful? I would have told you no. It wasn't a fruitful conversation. Because I felt like there was an opportunity, but I lost the opportunity. But years later, after that, she finds me on Facebook and she sends me a message. And it's very short and to the point. She was like, what was the book that you told me to read? I can't remember the whole question, but she wanted to know what the book was. And I told her it was the book of John. And I, and I kind of had at the end there, you know, and if, if you want to talk to somebody about that or anything, I'd love to do that. And I never heard from her again about that. But that conversation from years ago, even though it felt to me as a, a total failure, resulted in her years after thinking about that conversation and wanting to know what was that book he said I should read. That was in her mind, right? That was fruitful in a way that I feel like if we were to diagnose, we would say, no, no, probably not. But it did. It did. So by every mathematic equation or algorithm that I could have run that scenario through, it was a failure. And so when we look at Jeremiah's life and ministry, it has all the earmarks of a ministry that would be marked as a total abject failure in the eyes of the ways many, I think, evangelicals think about ministry today. That we, we, we measure, right? We're like, okay, what's your numbers? How many people got saved? How many baptisms? You know, they, they want that metric. They want to talk about that. But that doesn't happen for Jeremiah. And so many of the prophets' lives and ministries suffered similar fates, but Jeremiah doesn't entertain the thought of that being a failure. Jeremiah's life accomplished exactly what it was supposed to accomplish, regardless of how it looked. Because it doesn't matter ultimately how it looks. What matters is Jeremiah's portion, and that is God. So Jeremiah reaffirms his call because he's operating out of his portion, who is God. He has the safe base to retreat to. So regardless of what happens over here, how it looks, how it feels, that's not on his shoulders. He can go back to God, who is his portion. So Let this also be encouraging for you. So if you're the kind of person that feels like everything needs to be perfect, then you have to have everything all together before you engage in any type of ministry activity or whatever you feel. If there's a pull on your life, but you're paralyzed by perfectionism, you don't want to end up like me in that evangelism scenario where you're years later like, man, if I'd only done that better, you don't want to be there. 
ultimately that isn't on you. God will accomplish through you exactly what he intends to accomplish. Don't be paralyzed by the fear. If you remember in Exodus, God's speaking to Moses from the burning bush. He commands Moses to go and do what? To speak to Pharaoh, tell them, let my people go. And Moses responds with, look, I'm not a very good public speaker. I'm not very eloquent. I can't do this. And God tells Moses, basically paraphrasing, what are you talking about? This has nothing to do with you, your abilities or fears or anything like that. It has everything to do with who I am and what I say. This doesn't mean that we should live and speak irresponsibly. But we should be encouraged to live and love in the Lord, knowing that it is he who is responsible for for fruitfulness. After all, he is the vine. So Jeremiah, in verse 27, he reaffirms his call. And then he does something else. He postures himself as one who waits on the Lord. Going to verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. But the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Jeremiah resolves to wait. To wait on the Lord. Why does he do this? Because he knows that the Lord's mercies never come to an end. He knows that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He knows that the Lord is his portion, so he recalls these things to his mind. He has hope, and he waits. And knowing these things of our God, we can do the same thing. Now, it may not end up like the story of Job. We may never experience the healing of affliction, wound, or heartache in this life. We may have parts of our lives that end up being more like Jeremiah's experience. But that doesn't rob you of the promise of who God is. Instead, by virtue of who God is, we can know that those who wait on the Lord will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame, for he is our portion. Let me read this passage, and then we will close. Just earlier than I had intended. But in Luke 6, Jesus is speaking to a great multitude, and he says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You're not alone. Wait on the Lord. He will never leave or forsake you. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is the portion of all who come to him. Recall this to your mind when you despair because it is true. It is true. This is Christ's word for us.